Okay, so last week we got to the opening of the sixth seal on the scroll, and we were left with this vision of people from all walks of life quaking in fear at their inability to control their own fate. We saw the contrast between those who had remained faithful to Jesus, even to the point of death, and those who had put their trust in the things of the world. The former rewarded um, with the conqueror's robe, while the others were left running for their lives, hiding in caves, calling for mountains and rocks to cover them. (coughs) What we have seen several times as we've gone through this book is that the text moves from one scene to another quite dramatically, and often the scenes completely contrast one another. (coughs) From John's initial vision of the exalted Jesus, Jesus, to a change in focus as we move to the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor, to John's vision of the heavenly throne room, and then to four horsemen riding throughout the earth. And then in chapter 7 we have another change of focus. And what we find here is a pause. It's an interlude between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh. That seventh seal doesn't open until chapter 8. As we read this seventh chapter, it's really important that we keep in mind all that we have learnt so far from the previous chapters. But also have in mind what is to come. This section of the vision has two parts to it. It comes back to that idea that we've seen time and time again already of hearing and then seeing. What this chapter serves to do is answer the question that we were left with at the end of chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles and you flick back to verse 17 of chapter 6, you'll find this. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb and of the one who sits on the throne? In other words, who is able to face God's judgment? But this interlude also begins to address the larger questions of God's will for the world and what he will do about humanity that has gone astray from his intention at creation and who both cause and suffer from evil, chaos and death. Although the scroll has not yet been fully unsealed, we've still got another seal to go, Uh, and we cannot yet see its contents, i.e. God's plans for his creation, we do begin to get a sneak peek at what those plans are as this chapter continues. You know sometimes when you're having a dream and you wake up and for a while you're not quite sure uh, what is dream and what is reality, is that kind of state of flux. Sometimes the dream's really nice, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but sometimes you try your best to get back to sleep as quickly as possible and slide right back into that dream where it left off. But then sometimes that dream is a nightmare and you still wake up unsure of what is real. Was the monster real under my bed or not? Was that just me? Um, but this time you don't want to go back to sleep, do you? And you, find just, uh, you don't want to go back and find yourself back in the middle of that nightmare. Well, that's kind of the situation that John and his readers are facing here. They are going to have to face the nightmare. Persecution and threat is on its way and it's going to get worse and they must be ready for it. What is offered to them here in this part of the vision is not a picture of nice dreams in your head, but of the heavenly reality that they must hold on to dearly and tightly as they plunge back into the nightmare. The reality that God and the Lamb have already won the victory. The victory that means that those who follow the Lamb are rescued and brought safely through the nightmare to the other side. So the chapter begins with the familiar phrase, after this I saw, or after this I looked. Remember that when we read phrases like this, it refers to the sequence of the vision that John receives. It doesn't mean that these things in Revelation are all going to occur in chronological order. And what John sees here is four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, 
holding back the four winds of the earth. This phrase about the four corners of the earth is similar to us saying something about the four points of a compass. It basically means from all directions. However, in ancient times, people paid particular attention to the winds that came from the literal four corners of the earth, i.e. northeast, southeast, southwest, northwest. The winds from those directions were considered to bring certain weather conditions, um, usually bad weather conditions, or pestilence with them. But the f- reference to the four winds is probably more likely to do with the four horsemen from chapter 6, the horsemen of the apocalypse that we've already seen. If you look in Zechariah chapter 6, the four horses found there are likened to four winds of heaven. And this fits with the fact that these winds in Revelation are ready to blow their harm onto the land, the sea and nature, just as the four horsemen um, intend to harm the earth and its inhabitants when they ride out. Either way, these winds are prevented from bringing their harm on the world. Something must happen before they're allowed to unleash their destructive powers. And we find out what that is at the arrival of a fifth angel who comes holding the seal of God. This angel comes from the east, or some translations from the rising of the sun. And the seal that he holds is presumably the same seal that is used to seal the seven seals on the scroll. A signet ring or a stamp that is used to leave a mark in a soft wax or clay. And that's what's being imagined here. But this time it's 144,000 people that are to be sealed rather than a scroll. This idea of God sealing his faithful people to protect them from coming judgment is also found in Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 3 to 6 where the man dressed in linen is commanded to put a mark on the foreheads of the faithful remnant in Jerusalem before God's judgment comes on that city. This idea of a mark on the foreheads also relates to Deuteronomy 6 where God commands his people to keep his commandments in their hearts and to tie them as a sign on their foreheads and on their wrists. If you've seen Orthodox Jews, you'll see them wearing phylacteries. They're the wooden, little black wooden boxes they have strapped to their heads. They contain the law. It's a way of marking themselves out as God's people. Remember that I said we have to see this chapter in light of what has gone before, as well as what is to come in the book. Well, the seal that we see here in Revelation 7 is a counterpoint to the mark of the beast that is placed on the foreheads of those that follow the beast in chapter 13. The word seal was often used to denote ownership. Many slaves were marked with a seal by their owners. So the contrast here and in the rest of the book is between those who are marked with the stamp of ownership to God and those who are marked with the stamp of ownership to the beast. There is no middle ground to be found throughout this book. People are either in one camp or the other. They're with God or they're with the beast. And before we get to the end, we know which camp has the victory. But this ceiling also reminds us of something else that we have already thought of in other parts of the book, the exodus of Israel from Egypt. There it was the Lamb's blood that marked out God's people and protected them from the coming judgment, wasn't it? This ceiling of God's people here in Revelation is to be seen in that same light as a way of being protected from God's coming judgment. It is significant that John hears the number of those who were sealed. It says he heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And we know from experience in this book so far that what John hears is only seen in its full reality when he turns and sees it. 
In the same way, he heard a voice like a trumpet, but when he turns and looks, he sees that that voice in its fullness is Jesus himself. Likewise, he hears 144,000 being sealed, but when he turns to look in verse 9, what does he see? A great multitude that no one could number. Whilst he hears 144,000 from the tribes of the 12 sons of Israel, he sees people from all tribes and peoples and languages. What this tells us, what this really strongly suggests, is that both groups of people are one and the same. So what is the significance of the number 144,000? Well, to understand this, we need to remember the symbolic use of numbers found in this book. So to begin with, we know that there are 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the Old Testament, we find that the tribes were often divided into 1,000s, particularly for warfare. In Numbers 31, verses 4 to 6, we see that 12,000 soldiers fought, 1,000 from each tribe. And so this number of 144,000 could be linked to this. 12,000 times 12,000 equals 144,000. And some would say that this means a literal 144,000 Jewish people who will play a special role. But if we've learned anything about numbers in this book, is that they are meant to be understood symbolically, not literally. Instead, this 144,000 is a symbol of completeness. And again, we need to look ahead in the book. In chapter 21, we find a similar case of symbolism in numbers as we read about the new Jerusalem. The city there is described as a cube. It's 12,000 stadia in each direction. Um, and it has walls of 144 cubits. And we'll think about this more at another time as we get, go on in the book. But what is clear is that we're not to imagine the future city from heaven as actually being a cube. But there is a very good reason that it is described in such a way. Think back to the Holy of Holies in the temple. What shape was it? If you're looking at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, and you'll see that it measured 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. In other words, a cube. The significance of this is that the New Jerusalem is being described in the same way as the Holy of Holies. And what was the Holy of Holies in the temple or in the tabernacle? It was the dwelling place of God. So the New Jerusalem, the new creation, will all be the dwelling place of God not just some little cube inside a tent or inside a temple, the whole of the city will be God's dwelling place. The new creation will all be God's dwelling place. Think back to the video we watched a moment ago. This is where heaven, or God's dwelling place, completely comes together with earth, man's dwelling place. Heaven and earth reunited as they originally were intended to be. And so in the same way, this number of 144,000 is meant to be understood as referring to all those who belong to God's renewed and rescued people through their faith in Jesus. Even though the New Jerusalem has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed in its gates, it doesn't mean that it's only for those who are ethnic Jews. So here the 12 tribes do not indicate ethnic Jews over Gentiles, but rather the 144,000 and the great multitude are meant to be seen as one people. This is the total number of people who are sealed and protected from judgment. So what's with the list of the tribes in verses 5 to 8? Well, there's a couple of things to note. Firstly, and you might not notice it at first, but this list of the tribes of Israel doesn't match any of the other 12 tribe lists found in the Bible. 
There are actually 18 different listings of the tribes found in the Old Testament, and this is different to all of them. For a start, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned here, but Levi is, whereas Levi isn't normally in there. Also, Joseph and Manasseh are included, but Ephraim isn't. What's that got to do with this passage? Well, some of it we don't really understand, and perhaps the changes might not be important. But there is one change that is worth noting, and that is the inclusion of Levi. (coughs) Think back to the incident of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. After that, the tribe of Levi were given a specific function, weren't they? They were to be priests for all the people. However, before the people had fouled God at Mount Sinai in that way, what were they all called to be? A kingdom of priests. So this list harks back to a time when all of God's people were to be a priesthood. Just as Revelation 1.6 and 5.10 tells us that we are all called to be a kingdom, priests to our God. Also the two southern tribes of Judah are placed at the beginning and the end of the list. Judah and Benjamin. And each one has an additional mention in the ESV, I don't think it's in the NIV, uh, the additional mention uh, after their names where it says they were sealed. So all 12 tribes are kind of wrapped or sealed within the two tribes of Judah. Now think back to our depiction of the Lamb in chapter 5, and what is the other title of the Messiah? The Lion of Judah. So just in this list, it's kind of this image of everybody, the people of God, being sealed, being enveloped by the tribe of Judah, by the Lion, the Lamb and his blood. So this list therefore portrays God's people as a community of the Messiah who are protected from his judgment because they have kept themselves pure in worship and therefore have stayed true to their calling as a priestly nation. Again, Revelation is pointing back whilst it is also pointing forwards. It points back to God's original intention for his people, Israel, to be a kingdom of priests, whilst it points forward to a time when all of God's people will function in that way. Excuse me. After John has heard the list of tribes called out, we have the next occurrence of him then looking. And what he sees is both striking and surprising. Instead of the large number of people that he expects to see, he is instead confronted by an enormous amount of people, too many to count. The wording used here sounds like the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham back in chapters 13 and 17 of Genesis. A great multitude that no one can count from every nation. Remember how Abraham was told, he was promised that he would be a blessing to all nations, that from him a great multitude would come. Here is that fulfilment. These people are standing before the throne. Now of all these people, this innumerable number of people standing in front of the throne as well as the 24 elders the four beasts as well as john the lion the lamb and everything else it sounds like the throne room's probably getting a little bit crowded doesn't it but remember this is not meant to be understood literally instead we are meant to think of this and understand the presence of this crowd theologically again what was the question that chapter six left us with who can stand And what we get here is the answer to that question. This huge, innumerable crowd are the ones that can stand. They are standing before the throne, is what it says there. Rather than fleeing in fear from God's presence, like those described at the end of the last chapter, they instead can stand boldly in his presence. 
They can do so because like the martyrs under the throne in chapter 6, they are clothed in white robes because they too have conquered through faith. When we get to verse 14, we will find out how they have conquered and earned the right to stand in God's presence, to be numbered amongst this crowd. When we first started looking at Revelation, I said that there was a debate over which John it was that wrote this book. But for me, this chapter reveals that it must have been the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. The language he uses here is unmistakably alike to that that is used in that Gospel. What do we see the crowd waving in their hands in this passage? Palm branches, a clear echo of Psalm 118, but also clearly alluding to the crowds who wave palms at the triumphal entry. And it's only John's gospel that mentions palm trees, palm leaves being waved there. The praise that this crowd calls out before the throne in Revelation is salvation belongs to our God. Again, echoing the words of Psalm 118, but also the words of the Palm Sunday crowd in John's gospel. This awesome worship scene then becomes even more awesome as the praises of the crowd are joined by all the angels. As we saw in chapter 5, this angelic host is also uncountable. So this group of angels provides a heavenly counterpart to the human crowd. Again, pointing towards that perfection of heaven and earth as one. After a sevenfold call of worship, John then recalls the words of of one of the elders who asks him a rhetorical question. He says this to him, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? it's the second rhetorical question that we've come across in the book remember the question that was asked before the breaking of the seals who is worthy to open the seals these rhetorical questions feature throughout Old Testament prophecy texts such as Jeremiah 1 verse 1 Amos 7 verse 8 and many more what they serve to do is direct your attention to something in particular and they lead to a new revelation or explanation of something The question posed here is twofold. Who are they and where have they come from? But John passes it back to the elder who then has to answer his own question. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word tribulation is translated from the Greek word phlipsis, which literally means press or constricted. It is used to describe suffering, affliction or pressure. These saints have come through this time, come out of this time. They have passed through it. They have endured throughout the affliction of persecution, stood firm under the pressure of outside influences. There is no hint here that they are removed from such suffering, only that they have faithfully navigated their way through it. It is their faith under persecution and suffering that enables them to wear the white robe of the conqueror. The blood of the Lamb washes away the dirt of sin from those who remain faithful to Christ. Some would suggest that Christians are removed from this tribulation and escape it. However, the language all the way through this book, particularly in the seven letters, is not about telling these early Christians that they're going to escape the coming persecution and suffering. Quite the opposite, in fact. This book is written to encourage, challenge and reassure them to be faithful when that time does come. The reward awaits all who stay true and straight in their faith. Those who come out of the other side of the tribulation. Just as the New Testament warns us many times, as Jesus warns us many times, that Christians will face suffering. 
What we as Christians do escape is the wrath and judgment of God that we read about in Revelation 6. Faithful, enduring Christians are not to be found amongst the number that hide in caves or cry out for the rocks and mountains to cover them and hide them from the righteous anger of God. But that isn't to say we escape persecution or suffering for our faith. To receive our own white robe, to be amongst those who are able to stand before God, before the throne, we must remain faithful throughout any tribulation, any pressure, persecution or struggles that we face. In the book of Daniel we read about an intense time of great suffering that would precede the end and the resurrection of the dead. But as we will clearly see as we come to chapters 11 and 12 in however many weeks' time, John reconfigures Daniel's understanding of this time. For John, this time is, is now, from the time of Jesus' death, resurrection and exaltation, all the way through to when he returns again. In other words, the tribulation is the time that John and his readers, as well as you and I, are living in and already experiencing. It's not just a specific, specific literal seven years. Seven years. Otherwise, again, for nearly every Christian reading this book, that bit would almost be irrelevant unless they were to be around in that specific seven years. It doesn't have much to say to them, does it? Instead, it is very relevant for every generation of Christian that strives to remain faithful to God in the face of any troubles. We all need to be those who have come out of the tribulation with our faith and trust in Jesus intact all ready to claim the white robe that awaits us if we do. And then for the first time in the book, the throne room is located in God's temple, something that is alluded to when it mentioned the martyrs under the altar. Again, it's symbolic. The last three verses all allude to God's dwelling place. Firstly, in the temple, God's permanent dwelling place in Jerusalem Then also it says he will shelter them with his presence. The language used there is pointing back to the tent of the tabernacle. Again, God's temporary, movable dwelling place on earth. Already we are looking ahead to the end promises of the book, a time when heaven and earth are made one again, where God's space and our space are one and the same. A space where no one hungers or thirsts, but instead where they can drink from the springs of living water that Jesus (coughs) promised to the woman at the well. A space where the sacrificial lamb is also the good shepherd. A space where God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Grief is gone because he has finally dealt with the cause of all grief, death. Grief will be no more because death will be no more. The final seal is still to be opened. The scroll is still to be read and God's plans are still to be fully revealed. But what we have already got here is an insight into it all. A sneak preview of his plans to renew and restore all things to his original perfect creation. But there is much more to come and much more to be revealed. This chapter, as I said, is an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. And it serves to answer the question that chapter six left us with. Who can stand? The answer is found in three pictures of God's people throughout this chapter. Firstly, we see a people presented like a list ready for a spiritual ready for spiritual warfare as they endure the intermediate time between their release from slavery and their entry into the promised land. John uses the Exodus theme to point towards our time between Jesus' resurrection and exaltation and our own resurrection. 
They are then pictured as the people of Israel who are now from every people on earth. Rather than being a nation set apart by national or ethnic boundaries, they are now from every nation, tribe and people. And then thirdly, they are presented as a people who have come through great suffering. Not suffering brought about by God's wrath and judgment, but by the tribulation that comes with staying faithful to the testimony of the Lamb who was slain. They are protected from divine judgment, but still face suffering at the hands of human power. Together, these portraits give us a picture of a people in receipt of God's grace and who are responding to it. In contrast with those who, in desperation, cry to the rocks and mountains for protection, the servants of God wait for the gift of protection that comes from God's sealing of them, God's mark of ownership. They are mine, he says. They stand in white before the throne because of the gift of the blood of the Lamb, by which they have been purchased as a kingdom of priests for God. And their response to that gift is to remain faithful, just as Jesus did, and so to be ready to live disciplined lives of obedience to him. Next time we will see the seventh and final seal opened and how that sets off the next series of seven, the sounding of the trumpets. But for now, let's, um, let's conclude chapter, sorry, let's let this interlude from chapter uh, seven challenge you and encourage you. We have nothing to fear from what this world throws at us if we hold true to our faith in him, if we strive each day to be that kingdom of priests set apart to serve, honour and worship God with every part of our lives. We are not to be like those that we found in chapter 6 who put their trust in themselves, in the things of the world, those who will rightly fear the coming judgment of God. Instead, we take our comfort in any struggles we face that we are sealed, protected, owned by God. One day when we hear the question of chapter 6 asked, Who can stand? Will you be able to get on your feet and exclaim, because of Jesus, I can.